our second message today. We have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley, continuing his uh, messages on Thessalonians. It's called, Call to Holiness, Mr. Whiteley. Good afternoon. Thank you, Reggie. So it's good to see everyone here like it always is on another beautiful Sabbath day. And it's been just a little while since I've been up here at the pulpit and speaking. But as Reggie said, uh, I'm continuing in my series on 1 Thessalonians. Uh, starting back, I think, May, I started a, uh, a sermon series. Uh, and I think this is sermon number six. Uh, but essentially, every sermon is kind of builds on the sermon before, but it's independent in and of itself. So some of you guessed, some of you that haven't been here, uh, I try to keep all of them, of course, uh, you know, where if you missed the previous sermon or sermons, the one that you're listening to, the, the study that we're still doing, you can still get a lot out of it. So uh, just to kind of, before I start, uh, I always like to do this, to kind of go through, you know, what... This letter is, 1 Thessalonians is one of Paul's early letters, and uh, Paul established the church in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey, which we can see if we were to go back and read Acts, the 17th chapter. We know that whenever he went and was on this journey and established this church, that he had two traveling companions, and you'll often hear me say his traveling companions, and I will be referring to Silas and Timothy. And so these two individuals went with with him as he established churches in Acts the 17th chapter, of course, uh, not just Thessalonians, but other churches as well. After they left Thessalonica, okay, uh, they weren't there very long. They would leave, they would go to Berea, then they would go to Athens, and they would go to Corinth. But Paul had this urge, he had this uh, restless spirit about him to go and find out how the Thessalonica church was doing. And so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica from Athens and then when Timothy returns, he returns to them in Corinth around 50 to 51 CE or AD. Uh, and he writes this letter to the Thessalonians after receiving the report of how the Thessalonians were doing. And so the last few uh, messages that I've given on this epistle has been covering chapters 1, 2, and 3. Uh, and what we learned is, is that there's two primary topics that Paul kind of goes over in those three chapters. So just for review to get us up to speed, I'm going to kind of review those, two, those three chapters. The first thing he does is, and we see this, is he defends his motives and his traveling associates' motives for bringing the gospel to the Thessalonican community. It seems that there was people that were accusing Paul that they were in it for themselves, that they were just traveling around and trying to get you know, uh, uh, glory or trying to benefit off people for some reason. But Paul, he shows and he reminds them of the way that they were when they were with him, his integrity or their integrity, as well as their boldness. You know, Paul, we read in Acts the 17th chapter, it wasn't an easy journey getting from where he was in Philippi to Thessalonica. They were treated pretty bad in, Phil in Philippi. They weren't treated the best in Thessalonica, but they were really treated bad. And so he reminds them that we're not doing this because of, of any gain. Look at what we're going through to, to bring the gospel. And so Paul reminds them of their boldness 
as well as the integrity and the love that they had and demonstrated. And when they were there in Thessalonica, they worked for themselves. They, they made their own money. They weren't demanding from the Thessalonians to, for them to uh, you know, support them. And so Paul reminds them of these things in chapter 1 through 3. But he also really focuses, and it's even going to come up in the message today, he praises the Thessalonians. That's the one thing that he learns from Timothy is that the worries that Paul had, they were relieved. Because he learned from Timothy that, guess what? The Thessalonians, they were doing great. They were being faithful. They were, even though they themselves were experiencing persecution from their own countrymen, they were faithful and they even became a model congregation to the churches in the region of Macedonia, which is the region that uh, Thessalonica was in. So chapters 1, 2, and 3, that's kind of it in a nutshell, obviously. And we talked a lot about different things in those messages about our walking, and we're going to talk a little bit more today about our walk. And starting in chapter 4, though, Paul, he starts with this word in the English called finally. Okay, now I'm finally going to get to some other things. And he starts talking in specifics, specific things that it seems that he you know, wanted to address with the Thessalonians because of the report that Timothy had brought to him. And so, starting in chapter 4, we're going to learn a little bit about some of those specific topics. We're not going to get into, of course, all of them today. We're going to go through chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. But at the heart of this section of 1 Thessalonians is the idea of living a life in holiness. We are called to holiness. And we're going to see what Paul says about this in just a minute. But let's just think about that. God is a holy God. And we are called to be His people. And so we are called to holiness. We are called to holiness. Now, it's easy to kind of let that be cliche, right? You know, we hear that word. I mean, we see it everywhere. Every Bible pretty much says the word Holy Bible. And this word, even though it still is very meaningful, I think that sometimes we, and I'll just include myself, we can look at that word and, and, and make light of it. We're not trying to, but it just is the way it is. We, we hear that word holy, and maybe we don't give it the reverence and the seriousness that we should. But as we look through this message today and these scriptures, I want us just to think in the back of our head that title, which is going to be one of my main points. We are called to holiness. Let's go ahead and go to 1 Thessalonians. We're going to pick it up in chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. I'm just going to read all of them. And i got three points today that I want to bring based upon these first eight passages in, the, in, in 1 Thessalonians, the 8th chapter. So starting with 1 Thessalonians Chapter 4, verse 1, we see Paul say, finally then. He begins a new section in this letter that basically brings him to the entire close of the letter in chapter 5. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, 
not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud and defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. But in holiness. Therefore, verse 8, we, or he, any person that is, who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And so I got three main points. My first one's based upon the very first verse. That is, remember what you have been taught. Remember what you have been taught. Remember what we have been taught. And that's what Paul says in verse 1 when he's talking to the Thessalonians. He tells them to walk and live in the manner in which they were taught and continue to do so more and more. And in doing this, he does three things. Number one, it was just the main point. He reminds them of those instructions. You see, Paul was there and Paul gave them instructions and he uses this word received. This word received, which is in the Greek paralambano. And it is actually a word that is used to denote the accepting of instructions passed on as fixed traditions from teacher to follower. And we know that Paul is saying that you received not my teachings but the tradition that I received from none other than the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. They're not Paul's words. They're Jesus' words. They're God's words. Now Paul, obviously he was knowledgeable of the Scriptures. And if you think about it, we're in a different era. We aren't living at the time where the, the, the New Testament canon is still being developed and written. And we didn't live during the time where the debates of canonization were. But we, in the same way, we have received those fixed traditions, albeit probably in an easier era than Paul did, because you know they were writing the Bible and they were having to fight for the uh, writing the, the letters and the, the, the documents of the New Testament, having to fight for their lives. But we have received those traditions ourselves in the form of the 66 books that are contained in the Holy Bible. And we see that the same word later on when Paul writes Corinthians in chapter 11, verse 23. For I have received from the Lord what I deliver to you. The second thing he does is he praises the Thessalonians. He praises them. Again, he says, and this isn't actually in the King James Version or the New King James. There's actually a parenthetical phrase that's left out of the King James and the New King James because it's based upon some later manuscripts. But some of the more modern translations that we have, and I'm not talking about the paraphrased ones, I'm talking about the more modern literal translations like the English you know, Standard Version, which is based upon earlier manuscripts. We have this phrase that where Paul's saying this, that you know, I, I, I urge and I you know, exhort you to continue more and more and he says, just as you are doing. Which is completely in line with what Paul has been saying to the Thessalonians about the reports that he has received from Timothy. And so there's good justification for this phrase being maintained or retained in the Scriptures. And I think that it brings out a little bit, it helps us interpret some of this letter because later on he talks about some topics and you... And we have to ask the question, well, is Paul talking about this 
because he thinks that the Thessalonians are falling prey. And so the fact that that's in there, coupled with the other praises throughout the letter, kind of gives us some possible indications that he's not talking about it per se because the Thessalonians are dealing with it, but because he wants to remind them. And there's a theological lesson in and of that in and of itself in thinking about that. When we see Paul, he doesn't always just talk about things that people struggle with. He talks about things in a proactive way because he knows that those possible troubles could be on the horizon at any moment for people to let their guard down. And so that's probably what's going on here as he talks about the, the one topic in this stretch of scriptures that we're going to talk about here in a minute. Lastly, he exhorts them to practice those instructions. Those instructions, those fixed things that Paul had given them, which were from Christ, which was the gospel message. He tells them to do so more and more. And the Greek word is actually a word that means to be over and beyond, to be superfluous. It literally means to continue to abound in these instructions and push to apply them in your life more and more. And we know that there really is no, okay, I've arrived in this life when it comes to our Christian walk. There is no, okay, I have to get this good or I have to you know, get to this level and then I'm, I've arrived. I, I don't have to work anymore. We know that that's not in this life. Every bit of this race, that finish line doesn't come until either we die or, of course, eventually, even for those who die and for us who remain, when Christ comes back. When, as Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 13 says, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And we know that that's not happening yet. It's not going to happen in this lifetime until Christ comes back and we become immortal. We, we put on that immortality after Christ. That we're clothed with that. We're clothed with that inheritance. And I didn't give that scripture to Brian. I just kind of thought of it late. And so in all of this, he uses again this word walk. He uses this, this word walk. And I just want to read that scripture again. Where he says, Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the, Lord Jesus Christ, in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God. Here we see this word. And in previous messages, we talked about walking worthily. In chapter 2, we read about how Paul, in, and we, we named those messages after the things that we read in 1 Thessalonians, walking with a purpose. We saw Paul, he came to Thessalonica, him and his traveling companions with a purpose, with a mission. Walking with boldness. They were bold, and despite all of the things that were coming upon them, they continued on strong. They didn't let down. They didn't say, okay, well, we give up, or we're scared, or we're going to be fearful. They didn't give in to uh, those individuals that they knew that could take their life. We also know that we talked about walking with love as it pertains, of course, to our Christian lives. And here again, this word comes up about our walk. From Moons' Dictionary, which is a dictionary that I use a lot for when I want to look at a Greek word, he says that Paul uses the Greek verb peripatino, which is translated either to walk or to live. And it's sometimes used in a figurative way like here to refer to the way believers behave or conduct, conduct life, conduct their daily life. And so we, we know that Paul, he would use this word not just in First Thessalonians, 
but also in his other letters. And he would talk about this idea of walking, and it was always figuratively. And he, he uses it 36 times in his letters, referring to walking or you know, living a life that pleases God. And of course, he did this previously in this very same letter when he says in chapter 2, verse 12, walk worthy of God. And that's where we got those messages about walking worthily. Walk worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. But see, we know that this word that he's using, walking, okay, which is the Greek word, uh, it's the Greek word, I just lost my place here, uh, peripatio. We know that this is a word that he's using, and he gets this idiom from the Old Testament. He borrows this idea from the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament, there's a word that means walk, like it is in the Greek, that's literal, but oftentimes it's used in reference to people walking after God, or walking with God, and it's the Hebrew word halak. And people in the Old Testament, many of them, this is just a few, but Enoch, for example, in the book of Genesis, uh, or uh, Noah, of course, in the book of Genesis, and Abraham, all of them are said, if you were to read your Bible, that they walked with God. They walked with God. In each case, we know that what's meant when it says that, that they lived a life that was pleasing and lived a life in a manner that was pleasing to God. Now, when we read the Hebrew Bible, we see the word halak, and later on in history, in the New Testament times, a lot of the Jews use what's called the Septuagint. Because Hellenization came into the Greco-Roman world, much of the culture was you know, converted into Greek culture. And a lot of writings, because the language that was used so prevalent, especially the written language, was the language of Greek. And Hebrew became something that was still very important, but a lot of Jews lost some of that ability to know Hebrew as well as maybe they had in the past. And so we know that the Greek Septuagint, it became the translation of the Old Testament into Greek. And so when we read the Septuagint, we see that the translators, they translated that word halak, halak, the Hebrew word halak. They used the Greek word eurostio, which means please, meaning that they understood this to mean, of course, those individuals walked in a way that pleased God. We also know that Psalm 1.1, we've all heard this passage in this, this uh, you know, very popular psalm, the very first one, where it says, Happy is the one who has not walked, halak in the Hebrew, and the counsel of the wicked, as well as we see in Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2, where the psalmist David asks, who can dwell in the Lord's tabernacle and holy hill? And of course, the answer is only those who walk halak uprightly, which is in verse 2 of that psalm. Later on in Judaism, we would see that this word, this halak word, which means walk, became a synonym for Jewish law and the path every Jew should walk. And it's a term known today as halakha, which means basically you know, the, 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 the entirety of the law, the entirety of the way of life. And so we can see that Paul uses this word, he borrows this language that's not just something new in the Christian tradition, but it stretches back even to the very beginning of, 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 of mankind. As individuals started walking on this earth, and certain ones walked with God. 
They pleased God. They were unique. They were unique. I like this quote from John Bryan, who is the uh, author of the, the, the Story of God Bible Commentary, when discussing this idea that Paul brings out in, the, in walking with God. He says, The theology behind all of this is that pleasing God cannot be viewed as a series of random or even determined acts that one performs in order to receive a gold star. On the contrary, while pleasing God may consist of and require any number of acts, the concept refers to an all-encompassing lifestyle. It is a way of living that permeates the individual to such a degree that pleasing God is no longer simply what, a, what about, uh, it's simply about what I should do and what I should not do. It is who you are and the way you are and the way you conduct all of your life in relation to God. Uh, and I like that quote because I think it kind of summarizes you know, you know, that, that idea that it's not just well, you do this and the, you do this. It's not just, you know, we obviously know that there's requirements. There's there is, there is expectations for us as we walk with God. There's, you know, God's law is obviously relevant and still there. It, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's universal. It doesn't just apply to you know, a group of people known as the Israelites from the Old Testament. We know that. But we also know as Jesus comes that it's not enough in and of itself. Just the simple face value, physical letter of the law. But the holiness that God requires, the righteousness that God requires is so beyond that because the heart of, uh, or the spirit of that law has to permeate us as well. And that's when real transformation takes place. My second main point, which is pretty much what we've been talking about this entire time, is, is the title of this message. Remember, we are called to holiness. And Verses 3 through 8, we see that Paul lists out what the will of God is. Paul lists out what the will of God is. I just want to read that very that third verse again. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so Paul starts to go into some specific topics specifically related to this idea of sanctification. And he starts in this very first verse talking about the will of God. And we know that word sanctification, it's also translated in some Bibles as holy. It's a word that has, you know, it's related to each other. It pretty much means the same thing. Paul would use this term three times just in this section alone. Verse 3, verse 4, and verse 7. And Moons mentions that this term in the New Testament refers to the process of of making pure or holy. And as Paul would write his letters that we would get here in the New Testament, he would go on to identify, of course, the followers of Jesus as being called to a holy life. And this can be seen from the, book, from the letters of Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians. We see it. This idea permeates his letters, his theology. Specifically, the word conveys the notion of separation of God's covenant people who are to come out and be distinct. That is different from the world. And of course, the foundation of this idea is rooted in the Old Testament. Where we see the beginning of what God is and who God is. We see this from the very beginning of the Bible. As, as God began working with people, we see 
they were called to be different. And they were called to be distinct from other people. Whether it be Enoch, Noah, Abraham, all were said to have walked or pleased God. And we know that they didn't just go along with the norms of their day. They had a desire to go after a God that was very different than what they experienced probably in their normal society. Because we know that the idea of monotheism, one God, an all-powerful God, was kind of a minority idea back in these days. And we know that, again, eventually, we start getting detailed description of what holiness is with the nation of Israel starting, of course, in the book of Exodus. And the source of that holiness, of course, is God Himself. Because He is holy. We see Deuteronomy two times. Chapter 7, verse 6, as well as chapter 14, verse 2, where God calls Israel holy, not because they themselves have done anything to boast about, not because they're special, they're just a special group of people because it's something that they did. It has nothing to do with any merit that they built up, but because God chose them as a result of His faithfulness to the promises made to their ancestors. And of course, we know that ancestor is Abraham, and then through Isaac, and then through Jacob. And we see that even though they didn't always walk in the paths of holiness, we can see that all the way through. They didn't always walk in the paths of holiness. They were called holy because God denoted them as holy. God chose them as his people. And as Israel eventually would receive the law and the tabernacle would be established, we see that idea of holiness really come out as we see there are certain requirements for purification, rituals, both with the priest as well as for people who would be approaching the tabernacle. And of course, later on, we would see the same thing with the temple. In the same way, in the same way, the, the holiness that we see that's required by that nation of Israel for them to walk in holiness, this holiness or this sanctification is something we ourselves are called to. As verse 7 says, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. And like Israel, we are called to be set apart. Not like those in the world. Not like those in the world. I like this quote again from N.T. Wright. This is from his commentary on you know, New Testament for Everyone. He says, Paul believes, of course, that Jesus' death has purified his people from all their sins. God's Spirit now dwells in them, and as individuals and all together, they become the new temple for God to live in. Of course, he quotes 1 Corinthians, the 3rd chapter, verse 17, as well as the 6th chapter, verse 19. They must therefore be as holy in all the details of their lives as if they were constantly in the temple of Jerusalem. And it was something that I thought about that I quite hadn't thought about before in terms of if you look at the temple and how detailed it was and those requirements, those purification rituals. And sometimes, you know, people can kind of say, oh man, look at all that, you know, physical, legalistic, you know, all those things. They think that they're going to make themselves righteous and things like that. And of course, it was God's law. It was His requirement. It was His expectation. But all of those details, we think about that in a spiritual way that we, when we approach God, we at the spiritual level, God wants us to be that thorough and us trying to become pure. And of course, we know we fail. We know we can't 
obtain you know, true purity without Christ. But our mindset is bent on Christ and on God and on trying to understand what it means to be holy and approach God in a holy way. And so we, in our attempt as we grow, we try to be as holy in the details of our lives as if we were constantly in the temple of Jerusalem. And so as Paul talks about this, he opens up a topic that I think is kind of uncomfortable to talk about, but society tells us, as well as how often it is in the Scripture, tells us that we have to talk about it. And that is the idea of sexual immorality. And emphasizing the idea of sanctification and holiness, Paul zeroes in on this topic. This topic. And the word immorality is the Greek word porneia. And is generally a term for any type of sexual sin, whether it become prostitution, adultery, fornication. And because we have younger ears in here, this point forward, I will limit my use of that term and I'll just refer to it as relational immorality or adultery or fornication. So we aren't entirely sure why Paul decided to bring up this. You know, you could say, well, maybe there was an issue in the church during this time, okay, that they needed to address. And, 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 and we see 1 Corinthians, there was an issue of this type of immorality and Paul was very, very sharp to address it. And so, Paul doesn't address it in a sharp manner here. So, it's possible that Paul is not really addressing something that's currently going on, but maybe because of the prominence of this type of behavior, this type of promiscuity in the ancient Greek world, Paul knew that he wanted to be proactive. He knew that this lifestyle, this issue was so ingrained into this culture that he wanted to be proactive and he wanted to address it. Just to kind of give you some background to the ancient Greco-Roman world when it came to this topic, the Greco-Roman world had a very favorable view of adultery. That is, of course, relations outside of marriage. Many marriages were usually family arrangements. It wasn't necessarily a thing of love. They weren't matched based upon love. And to give a little idea about the perception of such relations in the ancient world, here's a quote from Demosthenes. He was a Greek statesman in Athens. He says, and he lived... Uh, from the years 384 to 322 B.C., so the 4th century B.C. He says, Mistresses, we keep for our pleasure, concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives to bear us legitimate children and to serve as trustworthy guardians over our households. And, of course, this was, you know, a few hundred years removed, or no, before the 1st century, but we know writings from the time of the 1st century shows that there was a similar attitude when it came to this topic, when it came to immorality in the first century. In fact, there was even, and I'm not real, real schooled and educated on this, but Augustus, who was the emperor kind of, you know, just those few years before the first century, like 8 BCE or whatever it is, he actually tried to enact some, you know, some laws because some of the immorality was getting so out of hand that the wealthy classes, they weren't even, you know, necessarily bearing children like they used to. And, uh, you know, and also it was breaking down some of the, the social structures because there was so much immorality in other places. He failed to do this. It was so prominent that he wasn't able to really get a hand, handle on it. But we know that writings later in history shows that this idea that Themasus had uh, was very, uh, or Demothenes, not Themasus, Demothenes is his name, uh, had a similar, uh, you know, 
idea, you know, similar perception when it came to this topic. There's even uh, innkeepers and owners, those people who would, you know, have, you know, like hotel rooms in the first century or during this period of time, the ancient Greek Roman world. Some of them were known to have slave women that would be for the entertainment of their, their male guests. And so we're talking about a pretty immoral world uh, in this time period. We even see in Acts the 15th chapter, when we read Acts the 15th, and this discussion comes about uh, regarding Gentiles entering the church. And so there's this debate, right? You know, what, should we, what topics should we talk about with, with, with the, uh, the, the new Gentiles that are entering into the Christian church? You see, the, the Jews that were the first Christians, they had a different upbringing. They grew up in the synagogue. They grew up in the, the, you know, uh, on Sabbath. They would hear the Torah uh, spoken every week. Uh, they would hear the prophets. They would learn about the stories. They understood, as like they say, the oracles of God, as they were the people group that God had delivered them to. But there was a group of people that were coming into the church that were alien from this. They, they're hearing about this Jesus, but it doesn't you know, automatically mean that they have you know, all the other things. And we even see that the apostles and the elders that were there decided on four different things. And one of them was, of course, you know, relational immorality here in, in, in chapter uh, 15, verse tw uh, 20 of the, the book of Acts. And so what that shows us is this, is that out of all of the things that were a big deal, see, they didn't want to overwhelm the Gentiles, but out of all of the things that were things that needed to be addressed, that type of immorality was one of the things. And you could even say that the idolatry part, because some actually say that idolatry was actually also linked to relational immorality in a lot of its practices. So it's possible that two out of the four things had to do with this type of immorality because it was a pretty big deal. John Bryson, that same individual that wrote the Story of God commentary on this book, he, in his commentary, was talking about him and his wife and how they took a trip to Pompeii or, I guess, to Rome, uh, you know, years and years ago. And he said that, he, and, and commenting on the first century Roman city of Pompeii that him and his wife visited, he said, I was a taken back by the frescoes in that first century Roman city. Sexuality was blatant and celebrated. Not only did the frescoes in the public brothels feature people unclothed and in various acts, but so did the walls of the dining rooms in some of the finest homes. As I became more acquainted with the ancient world, I began to realize that in many ways our society was beginning to look like the one the Apostle Paul knew. Not only is it a world of multiple faiths, but it is also a world where Christian standards of relations are not the norm. And I remember being a history teacher, and you know, I, in no way, shape, or form for the idea of revisionist history or anything like that, but there was definitely some things that I had to be careful, uh, especially when it came to artwork, uh, to expose, you know, high school age kids to. And a lot of that's just because, you know, you use your judgment as a teacher on what, you know, you know, if you think a kid should be exposed to and every parent has different ideas about, you know, too much they might see. And of course, the only purpose for doing that was is to show them artwork. And there's lots of famous artwork, you know. You know, Michelangelo's David, for example. You know, it's a marble and all the you know marvelous statues that we see and they're they're unclothed. And, of course, there's other things as well that are, you know, way worse than that. Way worse than that.
Okay? All right, so obviously I think we could all agree that this is a topic that's not something that just is from history. It's not just an issue that people in history had to deal with. In fact, the weird part about it is is that there's been like time spots in history where like things were a lot different, right? We talked about the ancient world and how graphic they could be and how immoral they could be. But there's been blippets of our time period just in the last couple hundred years where it's a total different world. Now, when we read or we go and we look at the mediums that we have in our culture, we can, you know, see that this type of immorality is pretty rampant. From TV to magazines to social media to the ever-increasing use of, you know, uh, explicit video content that people look at online, our society exudes this type of behavior. You can even in areas that you're not even expecting it, right? I mean, you can be watching a, a commercial on TV for a restaurant or, you know, a, you know, a, a, de- a car dealership, and they, would, they use this as an attention getter. And what's funny about this is I mentioned that we've had time periods in history. It's a far cry from the time period maybe in the 40s and 50s where it was inappropriate just to show things on TV like, you know, a married couple maybe, you know, having one bed or a pregnant woman, or even using the word pregnant, or Elvis shaking his hips. There was a time in history, right, just recently, where that was considered inappropriate. I think all of us could agree, wow, like, we've way went the other way on, on that. Even the Victorian age, which is a little bit older than that, uh, the Victorian age is like the 1800s, I think, 18, late, early 1800s to, to 1900s. Matthew can probably correct me as well as Mark. But the Victorian age apparently... The use of the word leg or legs was inappropriate, and it was such a taboo that even people would cover tables, the legs, with cloths just to possibly prevent maybe someone being offended. So obviously, it's a far cry from those times. And so we see in our society this immorality, and it's a relevant thing, not just because it's in our society, but it's even within the Christian faith. Unfortunately, this isn't just something we see the world doing. It seems like all the time we see news headlines of some sort of scandal that's taken place and involving some sort of Christian leader. I know that we can all agree that our own you know, faith heritage, our own church heritage experienced this. Just a few years ago, actually I think it was just last year, Who's ever heard of the individual? He's a Christian apologist named Rabbi Zacharias. Rabbi Zacharias was a longtime Christian apologist. He had a ministry for 40 years and it was focused on an intellectual apologist defense of the Christian faith. And unfortunately, he did get cancer, I think, uh, maybe a year and a half ago. I think he died last, last, somewhere in 2020, I think like uh, May of 2020. And he, unfortunately, in was wrapped I mean this individual that was very prominent in Christian circles and had a, I mean there's a lot of material I have several of his books I used a lot of his materials and it was you know specifically in you know he was an apologetics expert meaning that he wrote materials uh, about defending the Christian faith he would write it you know from debate you know in a in a philosophical way uh, the idea of you know uh, one God and Jesus and all of that stuff, but it was came out. It, unfortunately, 
you know, he was discovered to have been involved in many different inappropriate adulterous relationships. And it was found that he would even do this where he would abuse women. He would take advantage of them. He would, you know, they would be maybe under his care. Maybe he would talk to them and start get their trust, talk to them about their problems in life. And they would kind of almost begin looking at him as kind of a spiritual leader because that's what they thought he was. He was in ministry. And then he would take advantage of them. He would betray their trust. So we know that this is something that's relevant to us in this world. Paul also says in relation to this, he uses these two ideas. We're going to go through a couple of them. He says that each of you know how to control your own vessel. That's the last thing. That's the next thing he says, that each of you should know how to control his own vessel. This Greek word is the word skios, which refers to an instrument or a container. And clearly, Paul is using this word as a euphemism. And there have been a variety of interpretations of what is meant when Paul says, know or be able to control your own vessel. And there's two reasons for it. Number one is because this word, this term, skios, is used in reference elsewhere in the New Testament to other things. It can be referencing a jar, dish, pottery, any type of instrument, possessions, and even a person. And so because there's a variety of ways that this word's used, coupled upon the second reason, this, this verb that it's used right before, possess, in the Greek, it's a word, katamai, and it means to acquire, possess, or control. So depending upon the verb, does the verb mean possess, acquire, control, will change the meaning of possibly what the actual noun is, what the vessel is. And so there's been a few interpretations. Because of this, this word vessel having variety, some people view it means to possess a wife. First Peter, the third chapter, verse 7, calls the wife the weaker vessel. And so some people have interpreted that Paul's saying, get yourself a wife. You need to acquire a wife and you need to know how to do that. The problem with this is, is that Paul uses the word wife in other places, and he uses the typical word that he would use in the Greek, which is the Greek word gyne. So if he meant wife, why would he all of a sudden use this word that's more ambiguous for trying to be, some, be specific about a specific thing that he's telling people that they need to get? So it seems unlikely that Paul is referring to a wife. Also, if he's saying acquire a wife, he's also limiting the application of this and he's looking basically just talking to men what's more likely what's more likely is that Paul is referring to a person's body the other interpretation which I think is the more probable is that Paul is referring to the body and this is the term that many translations use in, in, instead of the word vessel a good example of this is where Paul would later talk in his second letter to the Corinthian church where he refers to the whole person body as being like an earthen vessel. And so he's probably talking about control yourself, your mind, your body, the whole person. He's telling Thessalonians control the whole individual in a manner that is both holy and honorable in a self-controlled way that demonstrates they are distinct, that they are different, that they are holy, which is the antithesis from the typical behaviors people in their society whom allow their fleshly desires or passionate lusts to be, dry, to be the driving force 
of their behavior. And we also know that these individuals, they're ignorant to the things of God. They don't know God. Don't act like those people who don't even know God, who just let their own desires, their own passions run their lives. He also says something else in relation to this. He says this idea of not only do you learn how to control your own body, your own vessel, but he also talks about not exploiting brother or sister. Not exploiting brother. He says in verse 6 that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this manner. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. So connected to this idea of controlling one's body in a way that is holy and honorable, Paul tells them not to exploit their fellow brethren. And that's exactly what's happening whenever we think about these types of relationships becoming ungodly. When people step out of the bounds of marriage or they, they, they abuse the holy gift of you know, the, the, the human design and how we're created and the way we're supposed to go about obtaining relationships. Michael Holmes from the NIV Application Commentary says, Whereas moral sexual relationships seek, to honor, seek the honor of others, this honorable activity amounts to a sinning against, like the NIV, a wronging or exploitation, the taking advantage of one's Christian brother or sister. An adulterous spouse robs his or her marriage partner of the trust, security, and intimacy the couple shared before the adultery took place. And I think that, the, 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 that what Paul's emphasizing here is a point that is very important specifically because he understands, even if he's just trying to be proactive, he understands the destructive nature that this type of immorality can bring on human beings the destructive nature that this type of immorality, both for the individual, the individual themselves. And we can, you know, I don't have studies with me. I don't have anything, uh, you know, I've, I've you know, saw things here and there. But we do hear about stories, of course, where people in infidelity, how it affects them immensely. Trust, emotionally, mentally, sometimes requiring therapy. The children that might be involved, family members, friends, community, a church family. And not only this, not only this, other types of immorality in this topic. We've also read about. I've read, you know, just recently I saw a, uh, an article, and I can't remember the article, so I don't want to be, you know, uh, real specific because I, I can't reference, you know, where I was reading it from, but. I, I actually want to say it was one of our, one of the famous singers, young singers, Billie Eilish. You ever heard of that? I think that's her name. And she was coming out and talking about her exposure to explicit video content, adult content online from a young age and how that changed and warped her brain and talked about how she's had a struggle to overcome it. And I don't know what her you know, life story is. I don't know where she is in terms of, you know, faith or belief in God or Jesus. I'm not into any of that. I'm not bringing it out because she's a testimony. But it, it, it is an example of how this stuff destroys the human mind. It can destroy the individual engaging in it. It, it, it can hurt and be destructive to the, not just the direct person that's the victim. It can have many different 
obvious consequences. And it can even be done within the bounds of marriage. I think that, you know, there's examples where there's abusive relationships in this manner between married couples, and this can take place. And I think that Paul understood that this was an important topic because he understood the destruction, the destructive force that this immorality can bring because it's opposed to the character of God and clearly it breaches the holy union that God has ordained and intended for human beings. So my last main point is those who reject, this is a sobering one, those who reject these things reject God and judgment awaits them. Probably the most sobering part of this section of Scripture and serious part is where Paul, he tells them these things, but he tells them not only is this a good idea that you need to do this, this is very serious. Judgment awaits those who ignore these words. Verse, last part of verse 6 through verse 8 says, I'm going to reread it, and the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who also has, who, who also, who has also given us His Holy Spirit. And so, what's interesting about these last, you know, few scriptures, especially that one, that part of that last part of six, where he says, "The Lord is the avenger of all such," it's because Paul is borrowing from Psalm ninety-four. You know, in this psalm, Psalm 94, we see that the psalmist describes the Lord, God Almighty, who brings divine justice and describes the acts of the wicked and how they prey on and oppress people. They oppress the, the helpless. They oppress God's people. They take advantage of, of the helpless, all while thinking in their head that God doesn't see their activities, that God doesn't, you know, God's not going to know these things. He doesn't understand their plans. If we were to read the very first uh, verse of Psalm 94, he says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. And verse 6 and 7 says, they, shall, or they slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Verse 7, Yet they say, The Lord does not see nor does the God of Jacob understand. And what is sobering about this is that he's borrowing this language and he has this psalm in his mind, is that not only do we have to be warned of this judgment, but Paul is actually likening, he's actually talking about those individuals who decide, who decide to ignore this, to ignore these things. Here in Thessalonians, he's likening them to the wicked of Psalm 94 to the fate of those wicked of Psalm 94. And so likewise, the rejection also signifies not just the rejection of Paul's words and rejection of, of God's words, but that, that key ingredient that ignites and activates God's word within us, which is the Spirit of God. And we read, he says, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God who has also given us his Holy Spirit. So as I close, as Paul tells us, we are to be holy. We are called to be a holy people to God. One of the areas of holiness in our moral approach is in relationships. 
And just as the typical norms of society in Paul's day polluted God's design and holiness in this area, we also find ourselves and our society in a similar situation. As members of God's church, like Israel, we have been proclaimed to be holy. Not because of us, not because of there's anything, any merit, any, you know, any room for our boasting, but because of God. Because we belong to God and our bodies are that temple of God. What is perfectly acceptable to the world is not for us as we are called to be set apart as Christians. I want to close with one scripture. Exodus, the 15th chapter, verse 11. This is in the context of the ancient Israelites coming out of Egypt and witnessing what they probably thought was the most mighty army of all history in the Egyptians, being destroyed by God. And not only that, even though they were Hebrews, they were Israelites, they were the, the children of Israel, you know, ancestors of Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob, and the twelve tribes. They definitely were corrupted, probably in their thinking of what you know, God is, what the divine is. But see, after they, they, they experience and witness this miracle of the parting of the Red Sea, and, and God leading them through that Red Sea, and into the Promised Land, or not the Promised Land, of course, to the wilderness, heading towards the Promised Land, we read that there's this song that's sang by Moses, as well as the children of Israel. And verse 11 really captured it, captured it for me. It says, Who is like you, O Lord among the gods? Who's like you? What God is there in this universe that's like you? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And of course, in the midst of this pagan world, nobody. There is no God like God. He is separate, separate, different than all of them because He is the one and only true God. And as a God that's different, He's not like the gods of the society of Egypt. He's not like the gods of the society of Jesus' day in the first century, the Greco-Roman world. He's different than all the gods of that world. And He requires those who follow Him to reflect that difference in character. Not because we go around and we say, well, we're different, we're better, and we boast in ourselves. But that difference, that difference is not because we're trying to be different, we're focused on, oh, I don't want to be like everyone else. I'm supposed to be different. I'm supposed to be special. But that difference, that, distinct, that distinctiveness is a result of us trying to follow and walk with God. And as you walk with God, naturally, you're going to start looking different. Your lifestyle is going to be different. Because this world doesn't walk with God. And so, with that, I just want us to understand that we're called to a holiness because we worship a holy God. And that in every area of our life, we have to understand we're called to be holy. It's not we're holy here in the sanctuary, holy on Saturday, and we go out to the rest of our lives, and there's parts of our lives where we don't strive to be holy. I don't succeed at it weekly. I, I fail at it. I'm not saying that I've, I've arrived, but there's a strive. We strive for it. We understand that there's, no, there's never going to be a time in this life where we say we've arrived, but we, like Paul says, 
that you do these things and more and more and more. 